From lesbian sex clubs to naked period dramas, we explore two very different, bold new films in this week's episode. Here's Harry Shanahan and Sean A. Williams on Rebel Dykes. Our confidence has like massively grown through being inspired by these women, you know, and it's like have a kind of like personal motto at the moment, which is forget having the confidence of a mediocre white man, have the confidence of a rebel dyke who likes spaghetti wrestle on a Tuesday night. I also chat to Eva Usson and Odessa Young about Mothering Sunday in today's Girls on Film. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. I'm going to get that gun of mine and I'm going to change you from a rooster to a hen with one shot. Some people call me a freak. I hate that word. I don't believe in it. Better yet, I don't believe in labels. You know, I think you're the only girl in the world that can stand on a stage with a spotlight in her eye and still see a diamond inside a man's pocket. Because I'm up at five every morning working my ass off. Does someone want to just tell me to my face you're never going to give me the scores I deserve? Welcome to Girls on Film. I'm your host, Anna Smith. It's November, and this episode is in partnership with the French cognac house Rémy Martin. So I'm planning some festive parties with a cocktail in my hand. Cheers. The first fabulous release we're celebrating this week is Mothering Sunday, which is in UK cinemas now. Set chiefly in 1924, it stars Odessa Young as housemaid Jane Fairchild, who's spending Mother's Day with her secret lover, Paul, played by Josh O'Connor. But events that day change the course of her life forever. The film also stars Colin Firth and Olivia Colman and is directed by French director Eva Usson. Good morning, Beachford House. Jay, is that you? 11 o'clock. Not met like this before. (sighs) Who was that, Jay? Wrong number, sir. On a Sunday. What happens? I'm thrilled to welcome director Eva Husson and star Odessa Young. It's lovely to have you both on the show. Hello. Massive congratulations on Mothering Sunday. I'm such a fan of this incredibly powerful film. I wanted to start by asking you both why you felt passionately about telling this story. Eva, if we start with you. Thank you, to start with. It was just one of those projects that landed on my lap. And when I read the novel first and then the script, I just realised it just felt like home. And I felt that, you know, I could tell that story like like if it was my own backyard. And I, you know, I was passionate about it and I told the producers and it has felt like that, you know, to the very end. And uh, I was just very happy I, I got to, uh, to do it. I'm happy you did too. <laughs> Odessa, what attracted you to the project? I think that it goes without saying that well-written and well-thought-out female characters are few and far between and quite hard to come by, especially for my age range. I think that it, aside from the fact that it it was just ultimately very fulfilling for those reasons, I also think that, you know, I've been through this, this, this period of time. Well, I actually did read it before the pandemic, so I must have sensed something. (laughs) But ultimately, by the time we started shooting, I realized how important it was to me. And I realized which part of the story was actually kind of the operative piece of it for me, which is just what we do, what we do with the feeling of loss and how we deal with it and how we can, you know, become, we can become complacent or apathetic. We can become burdened by our loss or we can transmute it into something that ultimately informs the world about 
what this feeling is and 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 if they one day have it themselves how they aren't alone and I think that that's kind of I could see Jane going through that journey in in this movie and I was going through my own personal journey with that and it just yeah it felt it felt like the right thing to read at that moment it felt it felt totally right Jane you have no family you have absolutely nothing to lose that is a gift, and you must learn to use it. When did you become a writer, Miss Jane Fairchild? Three times over. The day I was born. The day Mr. Paxton gave me my typewriter. And the third? It's a secret. Before I continue on the film, I wanted to ask you briefly, when you say it's rare, for, especially for someone of your age, to get offered, you know, meaty female roles, what kind of things do you tend to get offered then? I feel like a lot of bitchy high schoolers who get murdered. All the, all the tropes, the murdered girl tropes, or the, you know, girl next door, manic pixie dream. Girl. You know, this is like that, that stuff, which, you know, and not to say that there can't be good roles within, within that framework or that there can't be good subversions of that but you know I feel I feel like in this kind of this age range specifically having you know graduated high school not that I did or you know graduated college again not that I did but before your life begins in a way it's like before things start happening to you I think we're still very young at telling those stories and so that's kind of I think that's at least what I tell myself to sleep at night is that it's not me, it's them. <laughs> that's, a, that's a very interesting point of view. Thank you for sharing that. And now, obviously, there's a lot about gender and the sort of roles of masculinity and femininity in, in this film. What appealed to the two of you about the themes that are explored in that way? Is there anything in particular you wanted to highlight? What was really exciting to me about the whole piece is like the way that despite it being a period piece, there actually isn't a focused idea of femininity within the context of that period or both of these time periods, which I found really exciting to read because it felt a little revolutionary. And I think that even with the dynamics between her and Paul, for example, it's not, it's not, their, their dynamic cannot be described by their gender it cannot be because he is a man and she is a woman it is very much dictated by their class um and then later on in life when she is married to Chopin you can you have this real sense of equality in their relationship in the way that they talk to each other in the way that they're both they they both work in the way that Jane becomes a caretaker and assume like assuming a, a breadwinner when he gets sick and I just really liked how how subtly those those kind of gender breakdowns were explored uh in the script without it without it ever kind of being about gender it became very much comfortable with kind of a breakdown of gender that's well put thank you Ava. Yeah, I mean, I have the same, uh, I come from the same space as Odessa. I really get the feeling that what reattracted me to the story was the idea that it was not trying to demonstrate anything. It was just showing you what it could be like when it's not about gender. And I think it's a tough moment in the representation of women for us because we have so many stories that we still have to tell 
and they have to deal with the fact that it's been historically a struggle and we have to explore the struggles. You know, my previous film was about one of the struggles and yet at the same time, I am very tired of seeing myself as a woman on screen just through a struggle. And it's always, you know, oh, it's because, you know, you're a woman or like as a woman, you can't do that, blah, blah. And like here in the film, it's not even on the table. And Odessa's right, you know, it's more about the class imbalance of power than the gender imbalance of power. And the character of Jane is quite mesmerizing in that she takes things because she wants to and because why not? You know, she walks around the house naked, even though she's a maid, even though she's a woman and she should not be doing that just because she can. And, you know, she stands in front of this library of 2000 names of, you know, male writers. It's like, it's a, you know, double millennia of patriarchy standing in front of her and yet she is and she's powerful and she thinks she's as worth as they are and worthy as they are. And I, I adore her trajectory, the trajectory of Jane because of that, because at the end, you know, she, like something happens to her that sort of confirms her trajectory. She's carried herself along, along the way in her life as a creator and not as a woman creator. And, uh, you know, to just remove the gender of the conversation while showing a female creator at the same time for me was was very exhilarating. Ava, talk to me about um, the challenges of the shoot. I mean, the film looks spectacular, but what did you have to overcome to bring it to the big screen? The first challenge is English weather. Yeah. It's just not friendly, not filmmaker friendly at all. We were supposed to have this entire film set on one warm day and sunny day in March. And I think we ended up having two days of sun out of eight weeks or something like that, you know. That sounds like England. <laughs> exactly. So we did have girls that sort of uh, made us think of hurricanes. And it was, it was like the weather, honestly, was physically challenging for the crew to start with. Because I remember sometimes feeling that it was not going to be safe and that, you know, we might have to sort of like stop shooting. It was that bad. There was a lot of rain. Uh, there was this one scene I was just pulling my hair off. Like I literally could, I could shoot like one take every 20 minutes in between drops. So as you can imagine for the concentration of the actors and like for the light, you know, I'm so happy that people perceive the film to be very sunny and very bright and very warm because it's a miracle. <laughs> but that's the magic of filmmaking also, you know. When you put the right pieces together, it makes sense the right way. And I think we, we had the minimum amount of luck so that we could pull it off. And we did. You mentioned intimacy, and um, we talk quite a lot about intimacy coordinators on Girls on Film. Did you have them on this project? I didn't want to because I felt, especially during COVID, I felt it was yet another thing that was going to put more distance between me and the actors. And I also felt that, you know, my first film, feature film, was about teenage sex orgies. So I kind of had some experience, uh, you know, on, on dealing with, like, nudity on set and, like, the the like the fragility of it all, of the, of the human relationships uh, linked to that. I, you know, I, I do a lot of work uh, in choreography as well. So I felt that I had the tools to communicate 
with my actors what was required and like to put them at ease and also to show them through so much about trust, you know, um, I knew that it's not easy to stand around naked in front of a crew and to just bury your soul naked on, on, on the screen. We talked a lot about that and I think that, you know, they were aware that I knew how delicate it was and, and I, you know, I just made sure, tried to make sure that both Odessa and Josh were comfortable with whatever level we were going for at the time. You know, we rehearsed a lot of the scenes um, in, in the rehearsal rooms before just to go through the motions, not so much about the emotion, but so that, you know, the motions would be out of the way and we could go focus on the emotion on set. And I don't know, you know, you have to ask Odessa to see if that worked. Well, I would love to ask Odessa, yes. Would you like, would you care to comment? Yeah, I think that with intimacy coordinators, it is a very new position, at least for me. I haven't worked with intimacy coordinators before, despite having many intimate, intimate scenes kind of prior to the last couple of years. I feel like I've only ever really heard of having intimacy coordinators set in the last couple of years. And I think that because of that, the position itself and its requirements and its role and responsibilities is still kind of being ironed out and there's still growing pains. And I think that ultimately we came to the decision that having one more person in the room that was, you know, arguably still a helpful presence, but we could do without because of our trust in each other was ultimately, you know, a sacrifice that we were comfortable making considering that we were close with each other. And I think that none of us were coming in with any unrealistic expectations of what was required of us. I think that intimacy coordinators, I think that it is an incredibly important role. And I think that it is a role that needs to be refined uh, in a way. I, because I have, I have worked adjacent to intimacy coordinators. And I say that because for some reason on jobs that I've done before, I also haven't gotten them which I think is always an interesting decision it's like what scenes uh certain producers will think need an intimacy coordinator and what scenes they don't think need an intimacy coordinator it's often the sexually violent scenes that they don't think they need an intimacy coordinator for really it's a, it's a stunt or something it's oh very God, it's very God. interesting but this is what I mean I think that there is like a lot to be worked out with with their positions and roles on set and what is required of them and I think that you know Something that I think an intimacy coordinator should have knowledge and background in is kind of like a legal language. I think that, you know, a lot of the problems with nudity that I have come across on set is often regarding the nudity writer and how clinical it is and how you have to sign it before you enter these, these arrangements or these agreements. And, you know, if you think about that in terms of consent in terms of sexual consent nobody should ever have to sign away their consent and have that be a legally binding document and I think that that's you know that's where I have felt in the past about nudity sorry in intimacy coordinators where they might be more helpful is in kind of discussing the ins and outs or even even the even if a nudity writer is necessary in some cases and 
you know, I think that I think that we were all on this set, we were all lucky enough to have that trust in each other, that it was never a problem. But yeah, I think I think if there's one thing that I've learned kind of in these past few years, doing more of these scenes, which which would you know require an intimacy coordinator, I think that there's still much, much more that we have to learn about that position. Stand there. He's studying, is he? What are you doing? Studying. Good for him. Wish I could take you out. Champagne and oysters. I've got to get married, become a lawyer. That's what's expected of you, yes. Finally, are you both hopeful that we're moving in the right direction in terms of the portrayal of women on camera and also women behind it? We're definitely moving. You know, I think it's going to be two steps forward, one step backward, like along the way. Right now, the moment, I'm a little bit, I guess, taken aback by how long it's taking. You know, shocker. You know, I guess, I guess a few years ago, I would have been really thrilled by the fact that seems to be things seem to be moving forward very fast and like they're not. I was offered a project not too long ago by a male producer who was my age, you know, and he called me baby. And I was just like, I literally could not believe it. And I was like, done, just like I can't, I just can't be dealing with that anymore. And you think, you know, this is in the past and you think it's, you know, you've moved past it, but it's the trailblazing bubble is very much still a bubble. And, you know, most of the world and the structures are very much patriarchal still. And we just need to remember that. I mean, like, you know, the Texas laws, you know, about abortion. I mean, uh, how is it possible that we're saying that, you know, in 2021 in the States, you know? I know, it's shocking, isn't it? Um, thank you so much. And, and we are joining the fight with you for, for better representation of women. And thank you so much for joining Girls on Film today, both of you. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. That was Ava Usson and Odessa Young. Mothering Sunday is in UK cinemas now. Next up, Rebel Dykes. Rebel Dykes is a documentary telling the story of a community of women in post-punk London in the 80s. A heady mashup of animation, archive footage and interviews tell the story of a radical scene. Squatters, BDSM nightclubs, anti-Thatcher rallies and much more. We wanted to start this S&M club in London. Fifty of us lot get on a bus and the whole world knows we're lesbians. I am delighted to welcome directors Harry Shanahan and Sean A. Williams to Girls on Film. Sean and Harry, welcome to Girls on Film. Thanks for having us. Massive congratulations on Rebel Dykes. There's a lot of big fans in the Girls on Film team. In fact, some people are saying it's their film of the year. So we are very thrilled to be speaking to you. Wow, that's pretty, pretty nice to hear. <laughs> well, when people who haven't seen the film ask what Rebel Dykes is about... I know it sort of does what it says in the tin, in a way, but how do you elaborate? It's a subculture that's been previously largely undocumented, apart from some of the photographers in the group. But it's young, queer, women and non-binary people in London in the 80s who were part of anarchist and punk scenes who became kind of cultural 
game changers, really. Yeah, and just to add that, like, Rebel Dykes itself is like a retrospective term that we've kind of applied as a, a label for that that kind of anarcho-punk, SM dyke, all these kind of intersections of, like, you know, activist women and just punks in bands, really just to kind of do justice to their their history, really. Yeah, we wanted to sort of tell the story of the kind of other other story of feminism in a way because um for us it's like really the roots of the sort of sex positive feminism we talk about it coming out of um, america but it was happening in in the uk in the 80s and we wanted to kind of draw that that line through yeah bring the timeline kind of back and, and make it UK based. Well done. I'm glad you did because I grew up in the 80s in Exeter and a few of my friends were sort of associated with the scene. So I was kind of aware of it, um, but I'd never seen it on film before. And our younger team members had had no idea about this. So thank you for sharing the story. It feels really important and also really entertaining. Uh, You've got some great stories in here. What were your conversations between the two of you in terms of getting the tone right, educational versus humorous and you know, all this, everything in between. We already knew we didn't want to make it like a dry or kind of typical kind of historical documentary, especially, I know we have interviews that are talking heads, but we we wanted to use our kind of experimental artist moving image and kind of crazy animation style. So we knew that we were going to, you know, look at humour as well and kind of like the joy and the celebration in the stories and crack, try and balance that with, you know, some, you know, pretty horrible stuff that they had to live through as well. Yeah, I would say that we kind of took our cue a little bit from the people that we interviewed and that they had this kind of very punk spirit of, you know, let's let's just do it. Let's just get on with it. Let's let's make the world that we want to kind of see. And um, never mind that we, you know, are living on the fringes or we don't really have the resources. And we kind of took that 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 kind of same ethos as well. We, uh, Sean and I both come from a kind of a similar uh, music culture that's, you know, been around in Manchester for many years. So we kind of, we were using those same kind of methods within our own practice anyway. So we felt like real strong kind of kinship with them. But it's about capturing that rebellious spirit and, and having some queer joy in there as well. Not, we didn't want to make another sad lesbian film, there's enough of them. It was a great time and a terrible time to be young and queer. Thatcher had just got in politically. There was always this attempt to silence. It was dangerous just to be who you were in those days. What are some of your favourite stories, perhaps that have really resonated that with people that have watched it so far? Um, I think for me, it's definitely the BBC invasion. Because that had such an impact in my youth anyway. It's like the first time that I heard the word lesbian. Um, so it's like, they, you know, who are these exciting women that are doing this? <laughs> yeah, it, we just had a lot of fun, like, doing a, a kind of recreation sequence in the film for that. Um, and we also, like, kind of went to town with the idea of, like, a heist movie with doing the the abseiling with Harry's amazing animation and Elliot's really cool soundtrack. For the, yeah. yeah, we had a lot of fun trying to build this kind of tongue-in-cheek as Sean says like a sort of almost like a heist but kind of very chaotic heists that were going on whilst the rebel dykes were sort of getting involved in all these kind of direct actions against section 28. I think for me as well like one of the big revelations was um, Greenham Common which I had always understood as being you know a women's peace movement quite sort of gentle and 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 kind of peaceful. It was really cool to hear from the 
you know, the rebel dykes themselves, that they were completely not doing it for that reason. They were going there to, to meet other women and, and they were kind of discovering their sort of sexuality. And there's a whole kind of bit around kind of really coming out and discovering your identity. And I, I found that a really, really nice part of the film to kind of interview about and to edit about, yeah. That was really interesting to me because we've just done an episode on Mothers of the Revolution, which is a Greenham Common doc, which obviously does feature the women who went, you know, for the serious reason of protesting. But it was really fascinating to see the different characters involved in your doc. So it's kind of a great companion piece in a way. A lot of the rebel dykes and, you know, people we interviewed, people we didn't manage to interview, were very kind of committed to kind of various political causes. And, and a lot of them would have called themselves anarchists. And many of them were very against war in general and anti-apartheid and these kind of things. So there was definitely a crossover. And I wouldn't say that all of them were just there to yeah. kind of have sex. But that was the, the thing that we wanted to kind of bring out, really, because we felt, again, that the, the Greenham st Common story had been told maybe a little bit more. And it's these women that weren't really documenting themselves and nobody was writing books about them. And they were kind of on the streets and stuff, just getting on with their lives. So, yeah, that's... Yeah. yeah, the difference, I guess, with, like, a rebel dyke ethos is that they're doing, the you know, this protest and, you know, this political movement, but it's also kind of, like, an equal level with having fun. <laughs> so that's kind of where we came to it anyway. Well, one of the things that comes across in the film as a viewer is, of course, you know, the difference between the male gay scene and then the lesbian scene in terms of the way that people are treated, the way that the press treats them, the way, you know, average person on the street treats them. What did you want to highlight? in that respect as feminists really about how the fact that this was women um, you know doing kinky things or whatever's perceived as kinky was treated differently we explore it in the film that obviously there was there was some opposition in the mainstream feminist movement and particularly within the lesbian feminist movements to think the, the club chain reaction and, and, and to kind of S&M in general because it was seen you know as being kind of aping or copying uh, male violence or, you know, domestic violence and things like that. So I think we just wanted to make that point, really, that, you know, well, women are doing this. And, and, and there was a kind of a link, really, with the gay men's leather scene, which is, again, much more well-known and much more well-documented. But just to say, yeah, women are doing this as well. It's interesting, isn't it, when you say that, yeah, that why do you think it has been more well-documented? Feminism didn't, ha didn't happen to men as, as well. I mean, I hope that it happens to all men eventually, but I don't think it's happening, it was happening very much. It wasn't a concern of men in the 80s. I think, you know, feminism had to go through lots of different iterations and have lots of difficult conversations. And obviously, when one's a lesbian or a dyke, you know, you're at that intersection of, you know, you're dealing with homophobia, you're dealing also with misogyny in the general culture. So there was lots of very intense conversations happening in women's communities that probably weren't happening in other areas. And yeah. I think it's quite exciting how the Rebel Dykes became that kind of linchpin between all of these communities. Like they're the instigators, like they're the troublemakers. Um, and I think it really took a lot of, you know, the gay men scene by surprise. Um, and we can, you know, be inspired by that today. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was brave. It was brave what they did, given the climate. It was brave. They got trouble from within. They got trouble from without. And they were very young. A lot of them were very young when, when you know, in the period of the film that we're talking about. You know, barely into their 20s, some of these women doing these really quite outrageous things. So hats off to them. Oh, completely. Yeah, I think we're all left with a great respect for, and admiration for them. There's some fantastic material, kind of ephemeral material that you include in this, sort of the flyers and the fanzines and everything, which seems like a really important tool about kind of documenting this women's underground culture. Where did you find it all? We were 
Lucky in that, although this is quite an itinerant community and there's a lot of squatting, a lot of travelling, a lot of moving around, there's one or two people who had managed to get into and stay in social housing. And one of those people, Karen Fish, had kept everything, had kept all of her flyers and all of her things. So a lot of it came from just one person and then we put out call we had a Facebook group there was about 100 maybe 150 people that had gathered we'd sort of gathered together you know through the general networks and they would also send us things so I you know I would put out a call or Sean or Siobhan put out a call for specific things that we were looking for as we were editing the film so that was very very helpful it doesn't always result in the best quality of material when you're asking people to just scan things at home and people are sort of not particularly archivists or, you know, even very technical types at all. Just gathered together lots and lots of scans, didn't we? Yeah, and in terms of, like, the video side of it, there was only, like, a really a handful of tapes because, again, it, they didn't have a lot of money. They didn't have, you know, money to buy video cameras, certainly not Super 8 film or you know mm. so there was literally the there's a sequence of about the sm debate and also there's one tape which was actually inside chain reaction so you know there was lots of trouble with obviously how do we show footage from inside a private member sex club <laughs> lots of challenges i think with the archive side uh, but it's all being kept we've got a relationship with the bishopsgate institute in london and there's kind of like a a side kind of a big side project which a lot of the legacy of the film I feel will be is um, the Rebel Dyke Heritage Community Project where um, there's basically exhibitions there's intergenerational conversation and I feel like now the more people that are seeing the film I think they're going to be looking in their attics and digging out more more zines more feminax more copies of Quim and yeah hopefully we'll just get you know have to make a part two or something maybe not us <laughs> Leave it to the kids. It makes you want to keep everything just in, you know, in case for the future when you see things like that. You think, oh, why did I throw those flyers away? Um, you talked a little bit about the sort of the bigger life of the film there, which is interesting in exhibitions. And I know Bohemia are very involved with exhibitions. I hear you're off to Berlin Pornfest as well. Is that right? Yeah, I, I have to say, Rebel, Rebel Dykes <laughs> is not a porn film, but it is a film about, partly about, <laughs> it's partly about those it, those people taking back control of their own image and making their own erotica and making their own stuff and, and kind of deciding what they how they want to express themselves uh, yeah, sexually. And also doing live performance, which does include like fucking in public, doesn't it? So that you know, I think that's where Berlin Porn Film Festival got involved. Um. <laughs> that that is true, yeah. I mean it is a film about the yeah, we think the first women only sex club is certainly in the UK. And I guess that's where their their interest is. But yes, yeah, I think we're we're gonna be maybe one of the lighter films. Probably. Maybe it's probably one of the cleaner films. So that'll be funny. Oh, I'll have a great time. And in terms of the people that are watching it over here, um, who are you hoping this is going to reach? Because I feel like it has actually got quite a wild wide appeal, really. With this film what we're trying to do is make everyone feel part of the gang you know like it's like this big big umbrella term like queer we want rebel dyke to be understood like that so i think that it can reach it can reach everyone everyone can take something from this especially obviously if you're in the lgbtq plus community but even you know even like a straight white man i feel like is going to get something from it anyone who's into punk is going to get something from it anyone who's into you know caring about the world is going <laughs> to get something from it and um yeah I think, and personally, we've also got a lot from it. We've Our confidence has, like, massively grown through being inspired by these women, you know? And it's like, 
have a kind of personal motto at the moment, which is forget having the confidence of a mediocre white man, have the confidence of a rebel dyke who likes spaghetti wrestle on a Tuesday night. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> Definitely. I'm going to make you a poster with that on. Is there anything else you wanted to share with the Girls on Film listeners? Because I know a lot of them, this film will be right up their street. I think, well, I just want to say maybe that um, our producer, Siobhan, it was kind of her idea and she was a, an original rebel dyke. I think producers sometimes are sort of, are in the shadows a bit and um, need to give her her dues. But I, her idea was always that it would foster this intergenerational dialogue. I mean, we are you know, quite a bit younger than Siobhan. And then the film is speaking to people younger again. And, you know, we had, you know, a huge range of ages of artists within the, the exhibition. So, yeah, other than that, I just say, yeah, do keep your stuff. Do put your stuff in the Bishopsgate Institute or give it to other archives. Don't forget your history and talk to people who aren't the same age as you. Basically, get new grandmas, which seems to be what you've done. <laughs> yeah, I've been co- I've been collecting aunts and grandmas for, for years now. It's been brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> and as a side note, our house band MX Tyrants, uh, one of the members, Charlie Stone, is, is good friends with Debbie Smith, who's in your film. And you can even hear Charlie's voice in the film in the background. So there we are. We're almost in the film. <laughs> Congratulations again to you both. Excited to share this film with the world. And um, do come back on Girls on Good Film again sometime. Tell us what you're up to next. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks so much for having us it's been great we were loud and proud and we just didn't care what anyone thought of us that became my family we loved each other and then we loved people who loved our lovers that was harry shanahan and sean a williams rebel dykes is in cinemas and online on bfi player and on bohemia euphoria from 26th of november Bird's Eye View's Reclaim the Frame is presenting a special series of Rebel Dykes events and screenings across the UK. There's Q&As, panel discussions, you name it. For venues for all screenings and events, go to bfi.org.uk forward slash releases. Thanks for listening to Girls on Film and don't forget to like and subscribe to the pod and share it with your friends if you like what you hear. Girls on Film is an HLA production. Brought to you by executive producer Hedda Archbold, Audio producer Emma Butt, interns Rosa Herxheimer and Shania Pathia, and our partners for this episode, Remy Martin. I'm Anna Smith, and I was joined by Harry Shanahan, Sean A. Williams, Eva Husson, and Odessa Young. Thank you, lovely listeners. Stay safe. We were very naughty.